0: President Trump is not exactly known for his adherence to Washington norms. And his ongoing rhetoric around perhaps the most significant norm of American democracy, the peaceful transition of power, brushes against centuries-old precedent. Though we've faced several electoral challenges in our country's short history, presidential power has always passed peacefully from one commander-in-chief to the next. This year, though, Trump has declined to agree to accept the results of the 2020 election, whatever they may election.
1: be. Will you commit here today for a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're gonna have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots and the ballots are a disaster.
0: He's relentlessly tried to sow doubt in the electoral process, he's attacked the security of mail-in balloting, and he's suggested the outcome will be rigged. And again, on Tuesday, in an incredibly heated and contentious debate with Democratic nominee Joe Biden during a major nationally televised event, Trump again questioned the legitimacy of the upcoming election and refused to agree to accept its results.
1: I am urging my people, I hope it's going to be a fair election. If it's a fair election, I am 100% on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that.
0: We've asked quite a few can-he-do-that questions on this show over the past nearly four years, but this one is perhaps the most consequential. Can a sitting president of the United States refuse to concede? Can he refuse to leave office? And what happens if he discredits our elections, the foundation of our democracy, in the process? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Trump's persistence on this issue has really forced the question of what happens if he refuses to accept a loss. Though it's worth noting that most legal experts say it's hard to envision Trump trying to stay in office in the case of a clear loss to Biden. But any lack of clarity around the results is likely to have consequences. Perhaps litigation, perhaps false claims of victory, perhaps state-level battles over electors. I wanted to understand all of the challenges that might arise as the U.S. looks toward the final months of an unprecedented election year. So I turned to Lawrence Douglas, a law professor at Amherst College, who's literally written the book on this. His book, Will He Go?, explores the potential for constitutional chaos after Election Day and lays out what legal and institutional mechanisms can stop American presidents from wrongfully holding on to power. Let's start with just talking about what is supposed to happen during a presidential transition. What needs to change hands? What needs to be turned over in order for this process to go smoothly?
1: The very first thing that needs to happen is the losing, let's say, incumbent president needs to concede defeat. Typically, when I imagine concession, concession is kind of an act in which you recognize that you have legitimately lost an election and that you recognize that in a good fight, that your opponent has prevailed. So that seems to be the critical first step. And then obviously, you have other things happening, such as the outgoing president should be preparing the incoming president for a smooth transition. There are transition teams that are assembled. There's briefing that takes place. But of course, all that presupposes that first act has taken place, that is, in which the incumbent has submitted or at least recognized and conceded defeat.
0: So, what laws specifically oversee the presidential transition process? What legally ensures that these transitions go according to plan?
1: I would say that our system doesn't really secure the peaceful transition of power. That is, it's not as if there's kind of like a clear constitutional and legal edifice that's put in place that secures the smooth transition it kind of presupposes that it's going to happen. That is, it assumes that the actors are behaving in good faith and that they have bought into the norms of uh, constitutional democracy and that they are committed to making sure that the incoming president uh, has a successful term of office. So again, I would say this is something which is less secured by law than it is secured by norms.
0: I will say, in working on this show for three-plus years, we've discovered that some of our modern challenges really brush up against this belief by the framers that presidents of the future would want to uphold democratic norms. And so many things are not necessarily mandated by the law because of that. And we've seen that theme come up many times, especially when we're talking about Article 2 But there are actually some additional laws in place that guide this transition process. And that's the Presidential Transition Act, for example, which was enacted by Congress in 1963. And it's really evolved, but essentially it provides a framework for how a transition is supposed to work. So there's the Constitution, but there's also some additional laws to guide transitions, right?
1: The Constitution, actually, you know, it makes it very clear that the outgoing president's term concludes as of January 20th at noon. And so that is basically a firm time that's anchored in the Constitution itself. I think that the Presidential Transition Act, I really don't think it does a whole lot to forestall us or to prevent us from seeing the kind of crisis that we could encounter in this electoral season.
0: Let's talk about that big question, which is that Trump has many times, including in Tuesday's debate, declined to commit to accepting the results of the election. So what happens if President Trump loses his bid for re-election and refuses to concede? What happens?
1: One thing I try to make a distinction between is concession and submitting to defeat. I think a concession is like a gesture in which one recognizes the legitimacy of one's defeat. That is, that you fought the good fight, your opponent has prevailed, and you recognize that your opponent has prevailed. That seems to be somewhat different from submitting to defeat. I think submitting to defeat is simply more of what we might say a real-world recognition that even if you think that in some sense you've been cheated out of victory, that further resistance is futile.
0: So what happens if a president doesn't submit to defeat? Are there actual steps that are activated to remove him?
1: I don't imagine that on January 20th, Trump is going to need to be frog-marched out of the White House by members of the military after having barricaded himself in the Oval Office. I think the danger that the country faces is between November 3rd and January 20th. That seems to be like the real moments of danger in which Trump could really play constitutional brinkmanship. I think one thing that he's already telegraphed to the American people is the fact that he believes that the results of November 3rd in which it's likely that he could have a lead, that those results should be taken as the accurate results of the election, and that he would try to cast the loss of whatever lead might follow the count of the mail-in ballots as simply the product of a fraud.
0: Have we seen these kinds of acts of what you call constitutional brinkmanship ever before in history during this period between the election and the next inauguration?
1: The only time I think we've seen something similar to this is when there has been a genuine lack of clarity about who has won an election. And in a certain sense, we could have been heading towards something like that in the year 2000. Of course, the Supreme Court stepped in 35 days after that election to stop the Florida recount with George W. Bush clinging to a 537-vote lead. But I think it's also kind of wrong to think of the Supreme Court as having brought closure to that uh, election dispute. I really think it was Al Gore who brought closure because Al Gore very graciously conceded. And in doing so, he basically put the nation's interests ahead of his own political fortunes. And the other circumstance in which you have a country facing kind of a real electoral crisis is kind of a constitutional brinkmanship. You'd have to go all the way back, I think, to 1876 and this uh, rather notorious Hayes-Tilden election, which again kind of created an uncertain result that then created an election uh, controversy that wasn't solved until two days before uh, Inauguration Day. The then-sitting president, Ulysses S. Grant, was so concerned that Tilden and Hayes could stage their own separate inauguration ceremonies that he you know, considered uh, declaring martial law. So we've seen the capacity of the system to create these uncertain results, which can conduce to real chaos. But the one thing that we haven't seen, and I think the real wild card, is we've never seen an incumbent president expressing such disregard of basic constitutional norms and basically messaging the American people that our electoral system cannot be trusted. That's the real wild card.
0: So we have seen a lack of clarity around election results before in history, and we can perhaps draw some comfort that we've seen peaceful transitions of power under those circumstances. But unlike in 2000, when neither Gore nor Bush really threatened to not accept the election outcome, today we're facing this this new vulnerability based on some of the rhetoric of the sitting president.
1: I suppose there are two special things. One is the rhetoric of the president, which this is rhetoric that he's been trotting out all the way since 2016. The thing that gives this rhetoric some additional traction is the fact that we are going to be conducting an election under unusual circumstances. There's no doubt that you're going to have an unprecedented number of Americans voting by mail-in ballot. It is also true that those mail-in ballots probably will not be counted until days or possibly weeks after election day. And so that all becomes a recipe for a possibly uncertain result. And that uncertain result, I think, plays exactly into the hands of a president who, A, is a vulnerable candidate and, B, willing to play this constitutional brinkmanship.
0: Can I just ask you more specifically what he could do in that absence of clarity? What sorts of steps could a sitting president take when there is a lack of clarity around the election, when there is this unprecedented approach to how ballots are being collected? And what could the president actually do?
1: What he can do is he can declare that he has been reelected based on, let's say, November 3rd results. A recent poll indicated that somewhere between, let's say, 20 and 28 percent of Trump's voters intend to vote by mail-in ballot, whereas between around 53 and 60 percent of Biden voters intend to use mail-in ballot. Now, what that tells us is it's very likely that Trump will have a lead on November 3rd. And what he could try to do is he could try to leverage that lead into a claim that he's been reelected. He can continue to insist on that as the uh, count of mail-in ballots uh, drags on. And he can certainly try to, and this is where uh, the legal response uh, kicks in, he can certainly try to make for a situation in which the count of mail-in ballots, particularly in swing states, becomes both protracted enveloped in litigation and enveloped in confusion.
0: Could all of that litigation continue past January 20th? What happens if those matters are unresolved?
1: No. In fact, there's some pretty hard dates that states need to pay attention to. And these are dates that I think are basically on no one's radar well before January 20th. On January 6th, if we just move back a little bit, on January 6th, Congress actually opens the electoral certificates that have been submitted by states, counts the electoral votes, and basically certifies a winner. That's something that will happen in Congress, or supposed to happen in Congress, on January 6th, 2021. The electors themselves convene in their respective state capitals and in Washington, D.C. on December 14th. So and that's when the electors will cast their votes for whoever has carried the popular vote within their state. A couple of exceptions in the case of Nebraska and Maine. Moving back from that, December 8th is the date in this election season by which states really need to kind of figure out who has won their statewide election. That is a date that it's so-called safe harbor date, a date that was established all the way back in uh, 1887 in the Electoral Count Act of 1887. In this particular election season, it falls on uh, December 8th. And basically, the states have to figure out who has won their state, excuse me, their state by that date. So that gives them really kind of five weeks from November third to December eighth, to really get their act together, and you know, if you have this protracted litigation, uh, that can really start pushing states up against this uh, statutorily set date for figuring things out, and and then things can get very very complicated.
0: And if things do get complicated. One point in this is that Trump can't run the country alone. He can't sort of stay in office if it's decided that he is not the legitimate winner of the election. He would need others to continue to work for him. But it's my understanding that those individuals, if working for an illegitimate president, could face serious legal repercussions themselves. Is that right?
1: Yes, certainly that's true. I think you're absolutely right. And I do want to emphasize this. If it is the case that it seems like Biden has won, that Biden has been inaugurated president of the United States, then as of January 20th, Donald Trump is a civilian. And if he remains in the White House, he is a trespasser and he needs to be forcibly removed. The real danger I see is the way in which the waters can be muddied by controversies over the count of mail and ballots to the point that it's not necessarily clear who has won That strikes me as a situation in which we really could see things go very, very sideways. And again, it's the kind of thing that we saw in the year 2000 and we saw back in 1876.
0: And when you say things could go very sideways today, what exactly do you mean by that?
1: Let's recall that in 2016, Trump carried Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan by a total of 78,000 votes. That's a very, very tiny total. And that's what handed him the White House. And if, for example, the outcome in Pennsylvania is turning on a few thousand votes, and those few thousand votes become the subject of protracted litigation, I'll mention just one other little statistic. In this recent primary season, 60,000 votes in Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin were disqualified, that is 60,000 Malin votes during the primary season were disqualified for various technical reasons. So that 60,000 votes is almost equivalent to the total margin of victory that he had in those states in 2016. So again, if you imagine that something similar happens in the fall, in which let's say the margin in Pennsylvania is very, very narrow, and that narrow margin becomes the subject of litigation because it's not clear whether those votes were properly qualified or not, then you could get a situation in which Pennsylvania is unable to necessarily decide who has carried the state. And then that creates the possibility that, let's say, the Republican-controlled legislature in Pennsylvania could certify Trump as having carried the state, and the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania could certify Uh, Biden is having carried the state, in which case you get these conflicting or competing electoral certificates being submitted to Congress. And when Congress opens them on January 6th, 2021, Congress, if it remains divided as it is now, finds itself in a stalemate.
0: And just to clarify, the House and the Senate open the Electoral College ballots and count them on January 6th. And if there's any confusion around who's won a particular state or if there's a tie, then many legal experts agree, though it's subject to some legal interpretation, that at that point, a vote would then go to the House. And in the House, the candidate would have to win a simple majority of the states, so 26 states. And states, in this case, vote as a block, essentially, instead of voting as individual representatives all the representatives from Pennsylvania have to agree on one vote. So I recognize we're really diving into an unlikely scenario here, but what happens if a simple majority of seats can't be reached or that voting process in the House goes on longer than it's supposed to? It's January 20th. We've gone through this whole process. We still don't have a winner. From your legal perspective, what happens then?
1: If it can't figure things out, then by the terms of the Presidential Succession Act of 1947, uh, Nancy Pelosi on January 20th would be sworn in as acting president. But again, what we have to bear in mind is our wild card. So all of this is not happening against the backdrop of patient political actors duly waiting for Congress to figure things out. This is happening against the backdrop of a president we can reliably assume would be tweeting on a daily basis that he has been reelected that we need to go with the November 3rd results, that all of this is just a disgrace.
0: As we wrap up this conversation, I do think it's worth noting that we are talking about hypothetical scenarios because though Trump hasn't agreed to accept the results, many Trump allies have suggested that he in fact will. So we don't exactly know what will happen. But one additional factor in this very complicated potential future that I want to touch on is that Sort of regardless of what happens, there's likely to be a sense of doubt in our electoral process that might not feel so easy for many Americans to overcome. There's risks now of unrest, of potential violence, almost no matter the outcome. So what role do the American people play in ensuring a peaceful transition of power?
1: I think the best thing that the American people can do is they should vote. They should vote early if they're doing it by mail-in ballot. If they're concerned about the health risk associated by in-person voting, there are many, many states that permit in-person voting before November 3rd. I think it's important for the American people to try to monitor polling places, to make sure that there's no intimidation happening at polling places. And the other thing is, if there are protests roiling in the country between November 3rd and, let's say, January 20th, I think it's obviously incredibly important to make sure that these do not become violent, because I do think that the specter of civil unrest is very, very real.
0: Well, it does seem like this election will likely test our democracy in many new ways. Professor Douglas, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: This has been another episode of Can He Do That? For more reporting on the challenges we face this election year, visit WashingtonPost.com, where our reporters have been working incredibly hard to bring you critical updates about the state of voting around the country. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Ariel Plotnik, with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon.